David Williamson. David is one of Australia's best known and most widely performed playwrights, as well as being one of our leading screenwriters. He's written some 50 plays, including The Removalist, The Club, Don's Party, Emerald City and Travelling North, as well as scripts for 15 original feature films and many others, including the screenplays for Gallipoli, The Year of Living Dangerously, Far Lap and Balibo. He has directed productions of his own work and written many radio broadcasts, has adapted his plays for film, and after he and Kristen moved to the Sunshine Coast 24 years ago, was one of the co-founders of the Noosa Long Weekend and a generous patron of the arts in the region. Now, he's taken it upon himself to write a memoir. Just get this right here for a moment. This handsome book, Home Truths. Please welcome David Williamson to Mulaney. <laughs> Oh. Oh. Just, just to begin the evening, David's going to read um, a couple of short sections from the book. <laughs> just to give you a flavour of the book, I'll give you a few short uh, readings. Um, Nobody is a pure saint or an unredeemed sinner. We're all written in shades of grey, but as a first approximation, my father was on the saintish end of the goodness scale, being mainly kind and gentle, while my mother was somewhere towards the other end, being more often than not a seething cauldron of hostility. <laughs> in those days when the vast majority of jobs for women were limited to nursing, working in a shop or primary school, teaching, the most effective way to erase working class origins was to marry well preferably a doctor. Elvie fell short of this cherished ambition which left her with a lifelong rage against those who succeeded. Doctors' wives were right at the top of her hate list. <laughs> As a saleswoman in my department store, her life was blighted by the fact that many of her customers were doctors' wives. <laughs> My mother could spot them at a hundred paces, and it was almost more than she could bear to contemplate the indolent life of tennis, coffee and shopping these vile creatures enjoyed. <laughs> Doctor's wives remained the Flintstones that ignited her rage. My brother and I soon worked out whether she had a one, two or three doctor's wife day. <laughs> By her irritation level as she cooked our three veg and two chopped dinner. The thing I can't stand about them, she muttered bitterly, is their bloody ears and graces. They strut around like lady muck. <laughs> Thank you. This is Mother, first sees my play Don's Party. Mum and Dad had returned to Melbourne and were living in suburban Frankston. Peter and I, my brother, dutifully went to visit our parents to check out their new home. We were instantly depressed by the sight of its triple-fronted cream brick ugliness, <laughs> its clipped edges and the tiny, lone lemon tree struggling to survive in a lawn where no blade of grass was ever safe from my father's relentless Victor Motomoa. I rang the bell, Elvie opened the door and a creature about the size of a rat leapt out the door and ran round my legs at high speed, yapping with eardrum bursting ferocity. I worked out that it was some kind of shrunken dog <laughs> and bent down to try and pat it, then yelled in pain as sharp teeth grabbed my middle finger. I jerked my hand away but the dog came up with it. <laughs> Don't hurt her, cried our mother. I tried to explain that I was the one being hurt as I, as I tried to shake the canine piranha loose. It finally dropped to the ground and scudded off, yelping in pain. After the bleeding had been staunched, Peter and I went to the living room to face the gimlet stare of our mother, a whimpering Mikey cowering on her lap. You two took your time to come and see us, didn't you? We muttered unconvincing excuses and I asked her how she and Dad were. Big mistake. I've been to the specialist four times in the last month about my veins and your father is having a bad heart rhythm problem, not that you'd care. <laughs> my father says, don't carry on, Elvie, I'm not that bad. Huh. Every night I go to bed thinking I'll wake up and you'll be lying next to me dead. <laughs> to Peter and me, you have no idea of what I go through, no idea, not that you'd bloody care. <laughs> and this is true, at this point my brother Peter turned white and slid down the wall in a dead faint. 
In May 73, Don's party finally arrived in Melbourne to play at the MTC's home base in Russell Street. Elvie and Keith, not having seen one of their son's works, decided to go. Not only that, Elvie was determined to cement her presidential prestige and show off her famous playwright son by taking a busload of the Frankston Bowls Ladies Club <laughs> to see it. <laughs> I wasn't sure this was a good idea. <laughs> but my mother was determined to have a moment of glory. <laughs> Elvie sat horrified as the play unfolded. Her genteel members reeled under the onslaught of alcohol, sex and bad language, and worst of all, the vicious attacks on their beloved Liberal Party. <laughs> In a state of shock, my mother resigned as president. <laughs> The resignation was accepted immediately. <laughs> Thank you. In deference uh, to Anthony here, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read a little excerpt, final one, about my moment of fame in Hollywood, or near fame. Because of the pur purchase of our ha Sydney house, I was still in debt, which I hated. The problem was to be solved by a steady stream of well-paid Hollywood screenplays lasting from 86 until 2000. The downside was that none of them were ever made into films. <laughs> My first commission, 88, was for Paramount. It was the story of Major Ronald Alley, who during the Korean War had been taken prisoner by the North Koreans. Because soldiers in his situation were starved and froze to death at a great rate, many American POWs made propaganda tapes stating that the North Koreans had justice on their side. The American military hated the fact that their warrior class had turned traitor and searched for a scapegoat they could execute for cowardice amongst the dozens who made the tape. They chose one, Ronald Alley. He was defended by a brilliantly flamboyant, womanizing military legal counsel, Colonel William T. Logan, who drank a lot and whose assistant was a young lawyer named Jim Brandvik. Brandvik had to shoulder a lot of the work as the colonel was often drunk on the job. They managed to thwart the top brass and Major Alley didn't face the firing squad, got 10 years in prison and was quietly released after two as everyone knew the poor guy had gone through hell in career and should never have gone to trial. Jack Nicholson was cast as the Colonel, and Tom Cruise was to play Brandvik. I met Tom and Jack on several occasions, and they couldn't wait to start. Briefly, I was the toast of Hollywood. Stretch limousines, the Four Seasons Hotel, the lot. When you're hot in Hollywood, you soon know it. Director Martin Brest was all set to shoot. The movie had been greenlit all the way to the very top. Then Brandon Tartikoff, the head honcho at Paramount, asked the fateful question, what were, what were we talking about here? When he was told it was the Korean War, he reputedly said, nobody even remembers the fucking Gulf War, which is just finished. Forget it. And that was that. When you're cold in Hollywood, you get to know it even faster than when you're hot. Within the space of an hour, the stretch limo stopped. I was out of the Four Seasons Hotel and a taxi I had to pay for myself was taking me back to LA airport. <laughs> if we've got time, I'll read another couple of excerpts at the end. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will. Um, it was a bit of revelation to me how long you had spent in Hollywood. 14 years and 14, 14 scripts, I think it was, that you wrote for oh, Hollywood. Something like that. But quick trips, quick trips, but I hated every minute of it. Uh, I'd get on the plane and break out on a complete nervous rash by the time I got there because in Hollywood, everything is appearance. You don't have to just be a writer. You have to act like a, a, a writer. And you have to go into a room where you, you see about... 12 studio execs, producers, the director, God knows who else, and they're all looking at you and they've all just read your first draft. And then uh, they start. This is the script session. They all contradict each other. What's wrong with your script? There's always a lot's wrong with your script and all of them disagree about what that is. And it's, it's hell trying to make sense out of all of that. Uh, it, oh, it, it, it was something I, 
But the thing was, it got me out of debt. <laughs> but but do you um, do you resent the? I mean, these scripts must still be there somewhere. They're, they're still there, and they were good scripts. I mean, I was, uh, because I'd written Gallipoli and The Year of the Living Dangerously, uh, those two films were seen as strong films of social protest uh, and social comment. And so the remaining handful of, of idealistic producers in Hollywood thought, this is a writer who writes tough, tough, tough stuff. We will get him over here, and we will write stuff that is really critical of American society. Yeah. <laughs> so, for instance, I had a, a fantastic brief. They said, right, tell us what's wrong with the American med medical system. So I went round and I was able to interview uh, all the top heart surgeons um, uh, the top heart surgeon at that time, uh, he, had a, he wore a Texas hat, I've forgotten what his name was, but at any rate, he had a, a heart supermarket. He had like 12 rooms going full blast, all of them doing um, bypass operations, and his assistants would cut the chest, and he'd come in during the last 10 fiddly minutes, uh, and he said, look, I'm a, this, was, this was 20, 30 years ago, and he said, I'm, I'm cheap, you know, I only charge $50,000 an operation. Um, and between operations, he went back to his office and looked at his computer screen and checked the stock market. I mean, it was like a, it was, I thought, this is wonderful. And I found, <laughs> I found a, a middle-class white girl who thought she was covered by her insurance uh, at work. Uh, they have a, an insurance scream. Uh, and, and she suddenly developed a, a terrible heart condition called HCM, which means that you've got a limited life. And the insurance company dotted her by saying, no, it was a pre-existing condition, so we can't do a thing. And she was kept alive by a good surgeon who used to work in the public sector, but then came over to the private and did 11 operations on her and stuffed the bills at the back of the thing. He knew he'd get caught eventually, but he couldn't let her die. And I thought, this is a fabulous story. And I, I was fired up and uh, I gave them the script and they read it. They said, we wanted criticism, David, but not that sort of criticism. <laughs> And they finally settled for a, a, a week old movie that um, their criticism was uh, a doctor who had a bad bedside manner got sick himself and learned how it was uncomfortable to be treated with a bad bedside manner. And that was the extent of the, um, the criticism of the system. And that was about as far as they wanted to go. So it, um, I really got fired up by a lot of these projects because there is a lot wrong with American society and I was given free reign to do it. But I always pushed it. A bit more, <laughs> a bit more than they wanted. But let's go back to the beginning a bit now, because you didn't start out as a writer, did you? Uh, the, your your father and your mother's influence. You went off and you became an engineer. Um, yes, um, my mother and father. When Kristen first came into the family scene and saw my mother and father in operation, it was non-stop drama. I mean. They fought all the time. There was no, never any physical violence, but it was just full on all the time. My brother and I grew up thinking this was what life was all about. Um, and when Kristen heard them bickering and fighting, she found it funny. Well, my brother and I, as you've heard, we didn't find it funny. Uh, but she said, David, you had no option but to become a dramatist. I mean, that... <laughs> So my mother gave me that. I mean, she gave, she gave me an acute awareness that language was not just a means of communication, it was a weapon. And, um, <laughs> and she was brilliant at reading the subtext. She could spot an insult three layers below the surface. <laughs> And my poor old father would say, but they didn't say anything. Oh, didn't they? Didn't you hear? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I got back at them though, you know. <laughs> she was a working class girl from Brunswick who uh, grew up during the Depression, 
had to have sheets of newspaper but, uh, between her blankets to keep her warm, went through uh, unemployment. Um, she resented that all her life and spent the whole of her life distancing herself from her origins and and she was super sensitive to anyone who tried to put her down socially. But I learned that um, uh, language is multi-purpose, put it that way, yeah. I mean, you did say in the book that there was the twin parts of, of your mother as the viciousness and then your father as compassion, which introduced the humour, is that...? Yeah, um, sometimes the critics have been a bit worried about my work because they never quite know whether it's full-on satire or comedy. Now, satire skewers people mercilessly uh, for their faults and foibles. Comedy identifies the faults and foibles, but forgives in the end and, and says you're only human. Uh, and my work has always been somewhere in the middle there. I, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not as vicious enough as my mother to be a full-on satirist, and I'm not quite as kind enough uh, as my father was to be a, a, a full-on comedy writer. So yes, it's always lingered somewhere in between. The other thing that you got from your father was uh, a, a loathing of machines, is that correct? Oh, no, he, used to, he was the world's greatest handyman. Yes, I got it from him because I was always the guy that held the plank while he nailed the thing or he went into his workshop and with lathes and made abstruse objects and um, he had tools all along the way. I used to hate going in there. I thought, oh. Um, uh, so, yes, I developed a complete aversion to anything handy. Um, uh, and um, so tradesmen have made a lot of money out of me over my but, life. But, yeah. but, but that didn't give you really the best qualification to go for a job at General Motors Holden. Uh, in, in, when I was young, in the 50s, when I was being educated, any guy that showed mathematical aptitude was assumed and even forced to go down the science um, route. So I found myself with a full science HSC. I, I used to love literature. We had a, a wonderful um, teacher of literature called Alan MacLeod, who taught us Julius Caesar and Macbeth, brought them both to life. He acted out the parts in front of us. He showed us how the emotions and needs and drives of Shakespearean characters were exactly the same as the emotions, needs and drives of us today. Um, and it was terribly exciting, but unfortunately I was good at maths and they just said, enough of that, David, boom, uh, you're, you're a, a science matric, it was called in those days, so I had a pure science matric, which meant that I could either do science, medicine, or engineering and uh, medicine. I, I really, I was interested in, in what went on in the mind, not so much what went on in the body. That that was mechanical. I really wanted to know why my parents fought all the time. Why conflict? <laughs> yeah, where, what, where does conflict come from? Why do people fight all the time? Where, what where, what's the basis of human nature? Where where does all this come from? They were the questions that were obsessing me, not whether there were capillaries in your leg or something like that. So no medicine, no science. They told me you couldn't get a job. The subject I hated most in HSC was chemistry. I loathed those little formulas and equations. And I said, tell me the course with the least chemistry in it. And they said, mechanical engineering. <laughs> now, I, look, I had no idea of what went on under the bonnet of a car, except, except the car went. Uh, and so it was totally, it was the most stupid career choice that anyone ever made because I had no interest in it whatsoever. I got through it. Um, I, in fact, I was the first mechanical engineering graduate from Monash University um, because I was good at, at, at maths and could do the theory. So I got, I got an engineering degree, but then I, immediately I went back after I started teaching engineering, I went back to um, Melbourne Uni and started doing an MA prelim in psychology, which is the thing I was really interested in. And, um, and I did very well in that, and I was starting on an MA, um, and 
I was on the way to becoming a, a psychology academic um, when uh, the writing took over. But was, I was doing the same thing. What I was obsessed about, I was in the area of social psychology, which was how um, people influenced each other, how people used language to manipulate others, to demand status or try for status or um, defend themselves. It was the use of language in social groups that, that really fascinated me, the social dance we all do as human beings. So when I started on stage, I was doing exactly the same thing there. Mm. But you started out writing novels, but you were married to a woman called Carol at this point, and she was never terribly enthusiastic about your novels, you say in the book here. Uh, except then one night you went out to the theatre with her. Yeah, look, I, I had an inkling of how amazing theatre was because I used to write, starting with engineering reviews, which were incredibly crude, and I hope nobody ever finds the, uh, the, the scripts I wrote then, uh, then to university reviews, but I got that excitement of actors saying your words and the audience responding. But the last thing in my thinking was that you had ever become a dramatist in Australia because our big theatre companies were controlled by Englishmen. We had one play every 10 years, like the summer of the 17th doll, but the rest of it was pure English, a little bit of European, some American, but Australian plays just didn't happen, so I didn't even think that was a possibility. But I was also hooked on, on novels on black American humour, like Catch-22 and um, uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road. I thought, what a life, you know, this guy doesn't have a suburban, he doesn't settle down, he just goes on the road and it's sex, jazz and, uh, and excitement. Uh, unfortunately, in Australia at that time, it was very hard to live a Jack Kerouac-type life. So I ended up married in the suburbs with a secret Jack Kerouac somewhere inside me. And, um, and yes, uh, one, one night we... Uh, well, first of all, I saw Harold Pinder's um, The Caretaker, and I was blown away. The, the absolute... This was my mother, the absolute menace in the subtext. <laughs> I, oh, I know that one. And then um, I saw Edward Elby's Who's, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And, and suddenly the, the human subconscious had become conscious. The most, the nastiest human motives were suddenly on display. And then I went along to, yes, that night MTC, and saw Arthur Miller's incident at Vichy and the absorbed connection between the audience and the play, the live actors and the audience, the just total, you could hear a pin drop. And I thought, that's what I can do. I, you, you can do that. I don't know. I, I'm not schizophrenic. I don't hear usually voices in my head, but that night I felt a very strong feeling that that was what I had to do. So immediately I, I gave up writing reams of very bad imitation Joseph Heller or Jack Kerouac and, um, and decided I was going to be a dramatist. But this is such a, a brave decision. As you say, Australia was not a place where... It, it, was, it, was, the, um, it was the early 60s. Uh, the, the main business was a kind of war between the Catholics and the Masons throughout the country. There was, there was no theatre. And you'd suddenly decided that you were going to elevate normal Australian life to the stage. Well, yeah, I got angry um, because John Sumner, um, when, uh, when I started writing plays, luckily Betty Burstall came back from New York in Melbourne and had seen the vitality of the off-off Broadway um, theatre where new writing was the currency, uh, new exciting writing, and she came back to Australia and opened the um, the little um, La Mama in Carlton and said that of course there won't be any Australian writing until somebody is looking for that writing and putting it on and so she started that and so suddenly there was an avenue and my first plays connected at La Mama uh, the, I always used to write fairly close to life, sometimes too close to life, because I didn't quite trust my observations unless I'd actually seen it, experienced, felt it, knew it, knew it was true. 
and uh, analyzed it. Um, so suddenly, these Australian characters speaking in Australian accents were connecting with the audience, and that was such a buzz because I could feel it meaning something to it. And John Sumner, the big Melbourne theatre company, got to hear of it, and he said, David, yeah, um, well, that's all very well, but nobody, uh, nobody goes to Australian plays because, uh, look, he was an Englishman, I can't do his accent, I'll just, yeah. And he said, um, because um, nothing interesting ever happens here, this is the dullest society on earth. <laughs> well, he wasn't far wrong about Melbourne in those days. Uh, any of you Melbournians? No. Uh, um, but I said, that, John, that's ridiculous. We are human beings like any others. We have the same passions, the same needs, the same hates, the same longings. Of course, uh, we, unless you're going to cut us off from the human race, uh, we can generate drama because we're human and we have those emotions. We have the same emotions as the Greeks had uh, in the Greek drama. And um, he finally got the message and my play started to go on in, in uh, the larger theatres. But, uh, yeah, it was like breaking down a wall and that was part of the energy of Carlton in those days that that Betty brought to it there was just such an anger amongst us that we weren't allowed to tell our own stories that 98% of the fare that you saw on the Melbourne Theatre Company stage was English with English vicars and knickers and you know all that um, and um, uh, that pent-up anger gave us an energy we wanted to see our own stories. We wanted to hear our own accents. We wanted an end to the situation where Australian actors went to England, learned 43 different regional accents so they could get a job when they came back to Australia. Uh, it was ridiculous. And um, so, yes, that was a, a revolutionary time, I think. But there was also a kind of fight going on in those experimental theatre companies as well oh. because um, they saw your depiction of Australian life as in some way bourgeois and and not they, they wanted yeah. some they, they wanted they wanted a raw is that right uh, no 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 it was yeah um, uh, they I, I, I went in the Carlton theatre at the time when a lot of the actors were saying the writer is dead we're going to group devise our works now we're never going to say a word by a dictator writer that we don't believe in and uh, sorry Dave writers have finished um, uh, and the very first play I wrote for La Mama um, the very first full length play I wrote the short plays work, work really well and so they called me in and said well we're, we're, we're really finished with written work except be interesting if you wrote us a, a final scene and we will improvise up to it. <laughs> so, oh, this is an opportunity. So um, I wrote about a group of students occupying a flat together, which I knew because I'd done it, and I wrote the last scene, and, and, and Elf and he said, yeah, that's, that's not bad. What happens before that? <laughs> so I wrote the play backwards. <laughs> I kid you not. It was the only way I could get it on was by writing it backwards, and um, it became uh, the coming of Stork, which was uh, a, a grotty play about, um, but a very funny play about life um, um, amongst students in a in a grotty flat. Um, but you get into quite a lot of you got into quite a lot of trouble as well because, as you say in, in the book, it's one of the themes that comes up in the book all the time is that you were using the characters around you, the people you were living with, as as the as the kind of inspiration for the characters that you were writing about. Yeah, yes, I, I borrowed from life, and in the early stages, I was a bit unscrupulous. I didn't tell the people I was borrowing from. <laughs> In Don's party, that got me into quite a bit of trouble um, uh, because um, one of the guys, <laughs> my good friend, <laughs> uh, who resumed our friendship a little later after the play, uh, uh, didn't like the way it was depicted. Others did like the way. And I tried to say, look, it's never, you don't take a, a, a 100% human being and just put them on stage. You put your own worst characteristics, you invent some, 
you. Um, but there was no doubt that I, I did draw on life for the core of quite a few of my characters, and I should have. Later, as I started writing, if ever I thought someone would identify themselves, I always showed them the draft beforehand. But in the early stages, I got into a bit of trouble because I didn't. And I think one of your justifications to yourself about it was that you were harsher on yourself as a character than you were on anybody else in some ways. I mean, uh, Kristen writes in her biography of you, she says, you know, of the character Stork, I, I have a quote here, Stork is, it will be no surprise to learn, an exaggerated David, a gangling, sex-starved, hypochondriac Maoist with an, <laughs> with, with an honours degree in mathematics who's dropped out to become a gardener. Uh. <laughs> She's always been very flattering to me. <laughs> um, yes, yes, I used to exaggerate characters. I took the worst aspects of another friend of mine and loaded them onto the Stork character. It was then made into a very low-budget film by Tim Burster, one of our um, uh, breakthrough films that actually made money. It was a, a much more farcical version than the stage version, which was much closer to reality, but it worked and it, um, it helped to start the momentum. Yeah. So, one of the things I was going to ask you there about that is, though, when you showed the, your scripts to the people who you thought they might, who thought they might be identified, identifiable, was that really quite honest to them as well? Because surely if a, when somebody, when a writer picks up your life, there's something terribly flattering about that as well, isn't there? I guess so, uh, yes. Um, um, yeah, well, for instance, um, <laughs> the, the chauvinist womanizer in Don's party um, was quite chuffed because he said, yeah, yeah, they, they do fall for me like that, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Whereas my other friend who's, um, who had an obsession about the size or lack of size of his appendage wasn't so... Uh, <laughs> wasn't so thrilled. But later on, people were quite kind of happy to be... To be uh, uh, I, often, I did sometimes modify, yes. Uh, I, I didn't want to hurt pe people's feelings unduly, so I did, uh, when I started showing the scripts, I did modify to make sure that I wasn't um, being damning or, yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a delicate balance because I, I, do, I st do still think that I was only... Sure, I was writing something real if I knew it was real. Not that it was an actual transcription of life, but I'd seen conflicts like that or I'd seen situations like that. Um, I, I saw human reactions like that. Um, a lot of people, a lot of writers say, oh, I never refer to life, I use my imagination. Well, there's really only two sources of material if you are a writer. One of them is life and your observations and your um, analysis of those observations or other writers' work that's unconsciously lodged in your brain. Uh, the, the chances of having truly original thoughts are fairly small. Um, so a lot of writers who think they're using their imagination are actually drawing on a storehouse of other writers' work um, and you can find unconsciously tropes coming out that everyone recognises because other writers have used them. So I, I, I only felt comfortable if I knew I was telling the truth about what I saw or what I observed, which gives its, uh, which is uh, at, at some peril. Kristen at one stage said to me, if there's another feisty, sharp-tongued woman <laughs> character uh, whose name starts with K. <laughs> I'm out of here. And she, she finally got fed up when that wonderful actress, Robin Nevin, uh, came up to her and said, oh, I'm playing you again, Kristen. <laughs> but Kristen was a great source of inspiration. She was a terrific character, and she did f was invaluable, not only reading my scripts, the first person who ever read my, my scripts, and I get a, a tactful but fairly good idea of what she thought, um, but also 
her vitality as a human being, um, I couldn't help drawing from sometimes. <laughs> a bit of a shake of the head there, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that amazed me about this memoir when I was reading it was just the, the, the breadth of your oeuvre. Now, I don't often slot French words into my sentences, but really I think the word, I think the word oeuvre is really the only one that describes, because there's so many plays. For 50 years you must have written one or two plays a year or a film script or something like that. It's just an extraordinary output. Yeah, yes, and, and I'm glad you spotted the breadth because uh, I, I didn't always write comedy. Uh, some, of the, some of the plays I've written have actually been very tough plays. Some of them have been, at the other end, have been total farces without any redeeming quality except the audience that love them. Uh, I thought, well, if Shakespeare is allowed to write The Merry Wives of Windsor and King Lear, well, I should be allowed to uh, shift genre, which I have done over the course of the yeah. career. I, I, I think a couple of plays like Sanctuary and um, uh, the conversation have been some of the toughest plays I've seen on Australian stages. But I'm associated with, with comedy because that's perhaps the mean, what I tend to do. But one of the things that, that comes up to me is that, that when I'm reading about all these plays, is that despite this kind of relentless energy, not just writing the plays and film scripts and doing that and going to the openings and talking to the directors and the producers and the actors and working with them. There is also uh, a deep, un still retaining kind of undercurrent of uncertainty about how your work's going to be received. It's never, it was never something that you were completely confident about. Oh no, look, no writer is, um, actors say that you're only as good as your last performance and writers, um, especially if you're a dramatist, you never quite know what you've got until that final ingredient is there and that ingredient is the audience. The, um, the most exciting and most anxious moments of a dramatist's life are waiting for that first preview when you get your first audience in there who tell you what you've got virtually. Up to then, through rehearsals, the actors of four or five weeks, they've done the lines time and time again. They're sure there's nothing of any significance or any, anything funny after they've done them four, <laughs> 43 times. Everyone's getting despairing. Oh, we thought it was going to be fun, but there's... <laughs> and then you get that first audience and more often than not, boom! Um, it's all new to them. They don't know it. And, um, and you know from that response what you've got. And that's the addiction of being a dramatist. If, you're a, if you write a book, you might occasionally see someone reading it on a train or something like that, or someone might write you a letter about it. But in the theatre, you get instant and mass feedback about whether you've, uh, you've, you've made it work or not. And if you have made it work, it's the biggest buzz. Uh, people said, why did, you, why, why did you keep writing so, so much? Because I was addicted. I, after having got that connection between audience and play, you just want it again. And it's a challenge. Can I do it again? Can I find something that's going to connect? And um, it's, um, it's something I became addicted to, uh, and, uh, a little bit of a workaholic. Um, Kristen um, was also working um, flat out. She was, went from a double-A journalist working in one of the toughest investigative journalists at that time in Australia, the National Times in Sydney. Uh, it morphed into a novelist, so she always had a, a full-time career going too. We sometimes look better, back and say, <laughs> did our five kids bring themselves up? Or, uh, uh, Kristen still has guilt dreams about the time uh, she missed Felix's con uh, concert at school where he was Felix the cat because he was Felix, he was dressed up in a cat thing and she has nightmares, she didn't get there. Um, so we, we had those pressures. We were, we were both addicted to writing but I think we weren't too bad a parents uh, in between. 
How did how did you cope with that early fame? Because I mean, once you started writing a few plays, after literally two or three years, suddenly you were you had plays on in London and New York, and a great deal of acclaim. There were some very fine playwrights your peers who were telling you how good your work was and there were critics uh, applauding it, you were still quite a young man. How, how, was, how was that? How did you deal with that? Um, not as well as I, I should have. I think it went to my head a little bit. The, the, is, there, is there anybody who could deal with it well? That's, uh, that's no, part no. of the question, I think. Well, look, uh, from thinking, there was no way you could write Australian drama. Within a couple of years... My play Removalist was on at the Royal Court in London, which was the breeding ground of all the great English writing of the last 10, 15 years. And here I was. Um, uh, and I got a couple of prestigious prizes, the George Devine Award and the Evening Standard Most Promising Playwright. And that, the cultural cringe in reverse was what actually cemented my career back here. That's the funny thing about Australia. They didn't quite believe that I had it until the English told them, oh, <laughs> this guy's pretty good. Uh, uh, um, but, so I came back, I came back with a, a, a bit of a swelled head, but not quite prepared for what happens when you become well known. Up to that time, I'd been genial Dave, the uh, thermodynamics lecturer, um, teaching fluid mechanics, thermodynamics, no interest in the subject, but enjoying teaching, enjoying the students, they were mature students, enjoying the staff, um, enjoying friends. Nobody hated me. And then suddenly you become well known and you start reading appalling things <laughs> written about you in the paper, uh, criticising your lifestyle, your work, your, um, and you suddenly realise the arts is full of Envy, you know. Everyone wants to be that guy that I was, being photographed for glossy magazines with long hair and a leather coat and uh, trying to look as sexy as I could, <laughs> <laughs> which was difficult. Uh, but um, uh, I thought, oh, isn't this great? But you, you see all those other writers. <laughs> and so... I'd never been subjected to that before, the, the, the envy and the malice. Um, uh, and unfortunately, the human mind tends to focus on the negative that's said about them and ignores all the positive. There were plenty of positive things being said about me at the time, but you just take that, well, of course, that's right. Uh, uh, but the negative things, they really bite into you because I'd never experienced it before. Um, I, I was, as I say, I was genial Dave. Nobody seemed to hate me until now. Uh, so that took a bit of getting used to too. In fact, it took years to get used to the fact that um, uh, very nasty things were often said about you. Yeah. But one of the things that's so exciting about your, your plays is that you're very political. You've never shied away from examining the politics of, this, of Australia and things like that. And I guess one of the things I like about it is that your politics happen to align with mine. In fact, somebody in the some, someone in the audience here before you started accosted me while I was walking along and said, look at this hall, it's full of true believers. <laughs> <laughs> but you really were there, kind of right up there with, with Labour um, in the 70s coming to, coming to power with Gough Whitlam and the uh, the formation of the Australia oh, Council and everything. I've got a terrible confession to make. I've been voting Green for the last 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I describe a passage in the book where Chris and I went for a holiday to Dunk Island, which we promptly renamed renamed Dank Island or Drunk Island because it just rained all the time. We took our kids there and there was this guy and his wife and kids on the other table and oh God, it's Paul Keating. This was back in 82 when Paul had just been demoted uh, from the shadow cabinet uh, and he had no portfolio and uh, talk about young, young Cass, yonder Cassius hath a lean and hungry look. Well, <laughs> and he recognised me and so we started talking, the two families started uh, talking, and 
Paul had that gleam in his eye uh, about what he was going to do in the future, and Chris and I looked at each other, and what he was going to do, he said, all this stuff about feather bedding unions, that's all going to go, we're being international, they don't get raises unless there's productivity, they don't... They, and we, we thought, we'd never heard a Labor leader talk like this. This is, And we were there at the start of the new managerial Labor Party that accepted the neoliberal philosophy, as did the Liberals, but just said, we'll be a little kinder with it. Uh, but we... Uh, so... That was, that, that was freaky because we looked at each other and Kristen said, that guy, he's just burning with ambition. He's going to be Prime Minister one day. And, of course, she was right. And he did bring in um, uh, the managerial Labor Party. Um, uh, uh, all talk of fairness and equity went out the door. Um, in 1962, I think Australia was the second most equal distribution of income in the world. Now we're the third worst. And that's been just as much due to the Labor Party's reign as it has to the Liberals. <laughs> changing, changing the sub. Oh! Uh, <laughs> I, I, ju I just saw a mass of true believers walk out. <laughs> no, I, I think there's a lot of disappointment in the Labor Party, and uh, you know, but uh, we we have to. Well, we... yeah, I mean, uh, when the they the harshness towards our boat people, the refugees, was just as much a Labor Party thing. Uh, it was a me too thing. If you can be tough on them, I'll be tough too. And uh, and one of, the, one of the last plays I wrote, in fact, I think it was the last Family Values, was a cry of rage in a sense. I woke up one morning and heard the story of that Bill Wheeler family. Oh, uh, five o'clock in the morning, quarter of an hour to get your bags and get out. They'd been happy people in that community for years, accepted two kids born in Australia, suddenly, woof, uh, and the treatment of them has gone on and on and on uh, viciously. And, and when the Labor Party is asked to stand up and uh, they run away like scared cats, um, we don't want to be wedged. Well, about time you were wedged. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've lost a little bit of faith. Um, at least the Greens tell the truth occasionally. <laughs> It's true. Now, look, I'm just looking at the time here. I think yeah. the audience would love to hear another, another couple of readings from you. Uh, this is a, a little later in my career, in the early two, 2000s. N not long afterwards, I got a call from my London agent who asked me whether I was sitting down. He said Madonna wanted to play the lead in Up for Grabs in the West End, and I would need to come to London before rehearsal started, as she wanted changes. If I didn't come, the producer said... Madonna might decide to walk. Madonna had a force of personality that couldn't be den denied or ignored. She hadn't got to where she was by being a dimpled sweetie. Her whole demeanour radiated the kind of self-assurance that only millions of devoted fans can bestow. She felt she had earned and deserved her status and fame, and it had been many years since she hadn't got exactly what she wanted. She saw no reason not to get it now. Her eyes locked onto me with a searching intensity that made me feel as if I spoke one word of self-promoting bullshit, she'd turn her back in disgust and leave. After 30 seconds of laser-like evaluation, she finally spoke. You're older than I imagined. <laughs> oh. When I read the play, I thought you were probably mid-30s. Oh. Your art dealer, Simone, I don't like the name. It doesn't feel right for me. Oh, oh I'm, I'm not wedded to it. Lauren, she's Lauren. Oh, okay, Lauren. And we're in New York, not Sydney. And it's a 20 million Jackson Pollock, not two million for painting his peanuts in New York. Oh, that could work. <laughs> I know New York reasonably well. Lauren, she sleeps with a lesbian, she fucks a guy with a dildo, she lies and she cheats and she gets away with everything. Yeah. What kind of audience are gonna love someone who does that? 
Oh, they did back home. <laughs> Australia is that sort of country? They like am amoral cheats? Well, apparently. Well, in our country, you do something bad, you pay. Retribution, then redemption. Oh, retribution, then redemption. Lauren loses her money, Lauren loses her money, her apartment and her husband. At the end of the play, she has to remake her life. Oh, big change. <laughs> Retribution and redemption, that's why you're here. And that's why I was here. I had to rewrite the whole day. Two weeks in the rehearsal room with Madonna. If I didn't get it right, I had to rewrite it again. And my God, she suffered uh, <laughs> at the end. <laughs> it was quite instructive. I, I realised the American psyche it, they started as pilgrim fathers, religious, they think God's watching them all the time. We started with, with uh, <laughs> convicts and political agitators and crooked military, uh, and we knew that there was no God watching us. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, is, this is when Chris and I came to Noosa and decided we had to do something. Chris and I had worked out that if we didn't do something soon to integrate ourselves into our new town, we'd remain permanent tourists and never make friends or experience the richness of community involvement. With other key friends, we mapped out a plan for a 10-day arts festival called the Noosa Long Weekend. We decided to make it a multi-arts festival featuring music, film, drama, visual art, environmental walks and food and wine, as well as a forum where important issues could be debated. Now known as Noosa Alive, it remains, COVID willing, the largest and most successful regional multi-arts festival in Australia. Chris and I plan to lean on our friends in film, theatre and literature to attend for a fraction of their normal fee. Uh, as one of the offerings, Chris and I took to the boards again to perform one of my plays, Charitable Intent, at the South Pacific Resort. We still didn't have a theatre space in town, so it was presented on a makeshift stage. We'd managed to convince Brian Brown and Rachel Ward to come to the festival, uh, along with Rob Drew, Nick Ells, and the virtuoso classic guitarist Karen Schaup. They were all in the audience on opening night. So are my professional actor sons, Rory and Felix. Casting aside thoughts of my early bad crits for my performance as the removalist at La Mama, by opening night I'd convinced myself that by sheer hard work, I was, if not quite Laurence Olivier, at least up there with a the charming Hugh Grant. <laughs> I strode confidently on stage, opened my mouth to deliver my first lines and froze totally and mind-numbingly stranded mid-stage. I heard Brian Brown's characteristic chuckle in the third row. <laughs> Time slowed even further as out of the corner of my eye I saw my actor sons lower their faces into their hands in the second row. <laughs> Frank Wilkie, now Noosa's deputy mayor, the other male actor, saved me by loudly paraphrasing my first lines and asking me if that was maybe what I was thinking. <laughs> Kristen gave a superlative performance, crying copiously on cue at the most poignant moment and being totally convincing at all times. I thought that after that initial stumble, I'd really got into gear and been pretty damn good. After the show, I waited as the audience crowded around Kristen to congratulate her, thinking that it was inevitable that they'd do the same for me. <laughs> they looked embarrassed, mumbled and melted away, except for one kind, ageing lady who came across and told me brightly that she thought I was wearing a very nice suit. <laughs> Rory and Felix still call me Westinghouse when they want to remind me of the night I froze on stage. <laughs> and one last short one. Uh, this, this happened a couple of years ago. When we got back to Queensland's Sunshine Coast from an overseas holiday, there was nothing in the fridge and we went round the corner to our favourite local restaurant, Embassy XO. To celebrate, I had an agroni and half a bottle of wine, and I couldn't believe it when on the short 500-metre drive home, the flashing lights of a police car <laughs> turned on behind me. I pretended I hadn't noticed and turned into our driveway, but the flashing lights followed. <laughs> Kristen, drunker than I was, urged me to drive into the garage and lower the doors. <laughs> I wasn't quite as crazy as that, so I got out. 
I tested 0.06, just over the limit, and was taken straight to the police station. Kristen, luckily, wasn't tested on a 10-metre journey into the garage. <laughs> at the station, the middle-aged cop looked at me. You're David Williamson, aren't you? Yes, yes. Recognised you from the photo on the back of the play we had to study at school. <laughs> ah, which one was that? The one where the cops beat the guy to death. <laughs> well, I didn't get much leniency <laughs> that night. Thank you. So, do we have any questions in the audience? Uh, David, um, I was just picking up about your um, relationship with your father and how you didn't want to go in and be that handyman. Is that where the line, um, you couldn't drive a nail into a piece of fresh horse shit came from? <laughs> <laughs> I know my father thought that, but he, he wasn't quite that, uh, that crude. Yes, uh, I, I, I was hopeless, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. David, we hear a lot about the Australians being into the tall poppy syndrome, and I would have imagined that you'd be a perfect target. But then <laughs> the Germans have a word schadenfreude, which to me sounds almost the same thing. Do you think tall poppy syndrome is an Australian problem, or do you think it's more of a human worldwide behavioural thing? No, I, I think um, envy is a virulent emotion that's shared all over the world. We just seem to have got a particularly bad case of it in Australia. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think there. Um, well, at six foot seven and a half or eight, whatever I was, I was I couldn't not be noticed. Yeah. Um, and in in in, in foyers, I was incredibly uncomfortable after the show because you'd go out in the foyer and everybody had an opinion as they filed out, and you couldn't hide. I was I was I was literally a tall poppy. There he is. There he is. <laughs> But I think, yes, I think there is something in the Australian psyche um, that uh, has a drag-down quality that perhaps comes from our deep past. Um, it was originally a nation of working-class solidarity uh, against the boss or against the overseer or against the, the corrupt military. Don't suck up to them or don't betray your tribe, um, don't get airs and graces was a very strong component of Australian early mentality. Which is something we kind of inherited from the Scots as well too. Yes, yeah. Yes, well most of my ancestry is Scottish or Norwegian or something, yeah. First off, you, you, you talk about the uh, people leaving the room because of the uh, um, well, basically, people in Maloney are largely not taken with either of the industrialist parties, let's put it that way, so you're speaking to the converted here. But you spoke of the 60s uh, post-war, really. You never mentioned the word industrial cringe in this country, and I'd like to know your opinion on that. Oh, ah, uh, well, look, look, fill me in a bit. I'm um, not quite up with, I'm up with the cultural cringe. Sorry, I don't the, mean industrial, yeah, I had that on the brain, but yeah, cultural cringe in oh, Australia. Oh, I thought, gee, that's something I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't I ignorant? Um, yeah, uh, the cultural cringe, well, look, it's, it's hard for the young generation to realise how much our culture was controlled, particularly in Victoria and Melbourne, um, by English sensibility in those days. The theatre company was run by an Englishman. Um, the, the diet of plays um, was English. Uh, even at that stage, a lot of the television was BBC in English, which is not necessarily bad because a lot of it's good. Uh, but the cultural epicenter of uh, uh, taste making, the English departments in the universities were largely um, in the hands of Midlands Englishmen who came out with the gospel of F.R. Levis um, uh, and taught 
And, and Levis was an elitist of the highest order, and he taught that there are only five writers of any worth reading in the history of literature. Four of them were English, and one of them was Henry James, was a, well, sort of an English-American. Um, and that, that sort of sense that you don't even dare try and write when, when Professor Levis has told us that, that there are only five writers in the history of the I mean, it was intimidating. It was absolutely uh, intimidating. And that, uh, that went on for years. Um, and in Melbourne, people in Turak and South Yarra would call England home, even though some of them had never been there. It was, <laughs> was still this thought that everything of cultural worth happened over there and you're a nation, you could be soldiers, you could sacrifice yourself for the empire occasionally on Anzac shores and things like that. You could be nurses, you could be teachers, but forget being artists because we had Shakespeare and, you know, uh, and Chaucer and uh, we, we have a cultural legacy that you can never dare to emulate. And that was really the message that was coming out. So it was, it was a bit intimidating and, and there was a cultural cringe. A.A. Phillips was right. And as I said, it was really perhaps only the fact that I got some prestigious prizes in London that really reaffirmed in the Australian mind that maybe I, I could write. Hi, I was just wondering over the years how you feel that the film industry has changed for screenwriters and where the opportunities are for young screenwriters now. Well, I think Australian films, as indeed Australian plays, are perennial, perennially struggling. I think that, um, that the film industry in Australia has, as we always suspected, become largely a backlog for Hollywood. We have big studios all over the place and the big Batman films and genre films are shot here to enormous pride from our governments uh, saying, look at all the employment. Uh, uh, our, uh, our, uh, some of our actors make it in Hollywood and even come back to star in these Hollywood movies and we get all excited when, um, when um, Hollywood stars land on our shores. Uh, the Australian film industry is, is basically a small budget affair. Um, it's usually so tightly budgeted that there's no money left over for marketing, whereas the, 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 the great Hollywood machine allocates as much or not more money to marketing than, than they do to making the film. And so saturation promotion. Um, still only about 4% of our audiences go to Australian films. And in Hollywood, it's accepted that one in seven films will be a hit. But when one poor struggling little Australian film fails to make it, it's all scorn. So it's tough. It, it, is, it is tough. I think um, there's some quality television writing going on in Australia. Uh, and um, and staged because the fe our federal government basically hates the ABC, hates academia, hates the arts. Um, the funding has been cut since the 80s over the years so that our big state theatres are now almost having to operate as commercial theatres. The, the level of subsidy is min minuscule. In the olden days, they could take a few more risks because they had more subsidy uh, now they're going back to the 60s formula of, um, of looking for hits on Broadway or not or off Broadway and London and importing surefire things. Uh, and the thought that we should be creating an Australian dramatic literature is not as strongly held now. And most often than not, they're adapting novels for stage rather than, um, than writing um, uh, new, new plays. Safety is, is safety. And film industry still gets enough subsidy for it to limp along, but not, not very healthily. I've got one more question there. We might have to make this the last question. Hi, I've got a question about uh, Gallipoli, actually. So uh, I first saw that at the, in the cinema in 1982 and uh, was totally hooked on the story. 
and then after I saw it at the cinema, I actually purchased the book as well, which was um, a book written by Jack Bennett. And I've always wondered which came first. Did the screenplay come first? Because the book actually takes it from the beginning of Archie Hamilton's life. Um, no, so no that, that, uh, the screenplay came first. Peter Weir and I um, worked on the screenplay for quite a while. We started off with a whole panorama of the Gallipoli with thousands of characters and then realised we had to funnel it down to two essential characters and their friends. So, no, we, we created... This, uh, the, the, the Jack Bennett book was just a, one of those novelizations of a, um, of a film... Um, so it was an original screenplay that, um, from a Peter Weir story. I was the screenplay writer and he, he uh, worked with me on the story. But we had, interest, if I've got just half a second, interesting one on that director and writer clash. Um, we decided Frank, played by Mel Gibson, and Archie, uh, by um, Lee, um, Mark Lee, uh, Peter wanted them wanted uh, Mark Lee to be a a champion runner, which I thought was a great idea, and he wanted Frank to be a lazy layabout, you know, contrast, contrast. And I said, no, it would be far more interesting if Frank was a a champion um, runner too. Uh, They could meet in competition, Frank could get beaten, he could lose all the money he's backed on himself, he'd be really shitty but then suddenly has to admire this young man who could just beat him and the friendship starts. And the payoff, I said to Peter, would be, um, would be in the final scene, one of the two runners has to be chosen to run to bring the message back to stop the attack and the other one has to run to their death and, 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 and Frank never quite makes it, which is... Uh, and, but Peter was stubborn and he said, no, no. And so our producer, um, Pat Lovell, for three weeks this went on. I said, look, I'm sure I'm right. And he said, no, no, it's got to be a lazy layabout. So she got us up in a hotel called Jonah's on Palm Beach. She said, please, guys, just settle this this weekend. So we went up there and we had a few glasses of white wine. And then Peter is a gentleman. I mean, he's a, he's a really nice guy. He's as tough as nails, but he's, he's basically a gentleman. And he finally got it. He said, you're right. Run, one runs, one runs to death. Yeah, um, I've got it. And he said, um, uh, let's have a bit of fun with Pat, who's waiting tense back in Sydney. <laughs> and he rings up Pat and uh, she said, how's it going? How's it going? He said, oh, not too well, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid he was so stubborn I lost it. And I flattened him. He hit his... <laughs> He hit his head as he went down. We may have a body to dispose of. <laughs> he had an impish sense of humour and she knew something was wrong then. She started laughing. But, yeah. <laughs> but those sort of things go on in film, film all the time. But they're sometimes creative to do it that way. On that note, let's thank David Williamson very much for coming to Melania. Thank you.